Chapter 7 of Daniel signals a major transition in the book. The first half of which is stories about Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, some of the pagan kings, courtly life. It's mainly what we call historical court narrative. And the overriding theme of each chapter, the first six chapters, is that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. We see that theme over again and again. In chapter 1, we saw that when we learned of Daniel and his friends' faith and courage before their captors and how they chose not to defile themselves in relationship to their God by living in this pagan culture. It was death before dishonor in relationship to the God. In chapter 2, we saw this when God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream of a great statue that depicted the Gentile dominion over the nation of Israel, all the way into the second coming of Christ when God will once again establish His chosen nation in their land with a Messiah ruling from the throne of David. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. In chapter 3, we see this when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were handed over to the fiery furnace, and a fourth figure, an appearance of perhaps the Lord Jesus Himself in the midst of the flames, rescues them. In chapter 4, we have an account of King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of how God drove him away from mankind and made him like a beast of the field which ended with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. And we saw that he wanted all peoples and nations and men of every language to understand there's no God like Daniel's God. That was chapter 4. In chapter 5, Belshazzar's king of Babylon, and we have the proverbial handwriting on the wall. Well, it's not that one wasn't proverbial, it was the handwriting on the wall, the original and it was that very night that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. And just like Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream showed, God is in control of all things, including human history and its outworking. In chapter 6, Daniel as an old man, after distinguishing himself within the government, refuses to stop praying after an injunction had been signed for 30 days. It says, after he knew the injunction was signed, he went back to his room opened the windows, and prayed. And as such, he gets thrown into a lion's den where an angel of Yahweh rescues him. So chapters 1 through 6, again, are just straightforward historical court narrative. But as we start in chapter 7 today, we enter into what most kind of refer as a second part of the book of Daniel. It's just one book, but we see a significant change in the way some of the content is laid out. And in chapter 7 in particular, the content is that of a dream and vision that Daniel was given in the night. And this dream of Daniel is a recapitulation of the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, but from a much different perspective, with a much different vision. It looked way differently. However, the overarching theme of Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is exactly the same as what we saw in chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel's is a vision depicting the coming of heaven's king 
and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. We see that yet again here in Daniel chapter 7. We got that in chapter 2 in the dream with Nebuchadnezzar, and we get this again in chapter 7 with a vision that God gave Daniel himself. And this kingdom that's going to come and the kingship that will usher in this kingdom will be one like nothing this world has ever known or experienced before. And it's that very kingdom for which we as God's children long for and are waiting upon. Amen? It's our only hope. He is our hope. And did you know that this theme of a coming king and a coming kingdom is not something that's new to Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 7? Did you know that the theme of the coronation of this king that we're referring to is a central strand of biblical revelation, which is as old as the book of Genesis? Did you know that you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, the first book of the Bible, and find the promise of this coming king, the one that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the rock, that was cut without hands, the one that Daniel sees in his vision as well. Early on in our Bible, we are told that one will come who's named, who, who was named there Shiloh. And the obedience, it says, of all the peoples shall be to him. And what I want to do this morning by way of introduction into Daniel chapter 7 is to take a a bit of an excursus on this theme of the coming king and his kingdom. And to take a peek at that in a few different places strewn throughout the revelation of God's word so that we don't think that perhaps when we got to Daniel chapter 2 and saw this dream of Nebuchadnezzar's and a rock cut without hands and a kingdom that will fill the entire earth or in Daniel chapter 7 that this was somehow a new concept. So I'm going to have a start this morning looking at that passage in Genesis 49. And it's in this passage, chapter 49, where Jacob, prior to his death, is giving his final blessings and pronouncements over his sons. And when you get to verses 8 through 10 and a few after that, we have his blessings and pronouncements over his son Judah. Notice what Jacob says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh simply means the one whose right it is. And when Shiloh comes, he will take the scepter, and everyone knows full well that scepters belong to kings, so in Genesis 49, there will come one whose right it is to take the scepter, and it says of that one, quote, to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. Now, perhaps we might say that's a little bit veiled in terms of the recognition that it's in reference to this king, and I might say surely, but when we think about it, which tribe was Jesus Christ born into? The tribe of Judah, right, you guessed it. And who was known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah? I think we sang a song here this morning that made reference to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, of course, that's, again, Jesus, the rightful king from heaven. Here made reference to as Shiloh, the one whose right it is, who although seated now at the right hand of God, will one day be seated on an earthly Davidic throne. And this is even way before David, and David's throne was established but will rightly sit upon a glorious throne. And again, to Him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Just like we see in Daniel chapter 2 and like we're going to see in Daniel chapter 7. Now, let me show you another one from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, God gave a message to David through his prophet Nathan. David had a great desire in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. David, after all, was living in a magnificent palace made of cedar. He was incredibly wealthy, and he was living a very sumptuous, glorious, magnificent life in a very beautiful, palatial palace. On the other hand, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence dwelt, was among his, while among his people, was residing in a tent, referred to as the tabernacle. And David went to the prophet Nathan, and he said to Nathan, he says, I can't stand this anymore. I can't tolerate God's presence dwelling in a tent while I'm living in a palace. I want to build a house for Yahweh. And Nathan says to him initially, good idea, David. You ought to do that. But then that very night, Yahweh God came to Nathan, the prophet, and said, hey, Nathan, how come you didn't check with me first? I'm paraphrasing a little bit colloquially of how God might have said this to him. Hey, hey, Nathan, why didn't you check with me first about this, uh, whether it would be a good idea for David to build this house for me? After all, he's a man of bloodshed. And so I've made a decision that his son, uh, Solomon, will be the one that's going to build this house for me because Solomon is going to be a man of peace. And Solomon was, again, the son who went on to build that house, the temple, as a permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God among His people. But in the midst of that promise that Solomon would build the house for Yahweh in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, this is what God said to David through his prophet Nathan. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So God, through the prophet Nathan, tells David that, quote, his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. Now, you're probably somewhat familiar with this, but I want to just parlay this for you with what was said about Jesus from the angel Gabriel, who also is the same angel that shows up in the book of Daniel regarding this promise that was made to David. Notice Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. The angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So here the angel Gabriel makes the very direct pronouncement, so we don't even have to question or wonder whether or not Jesus is indeed the greater David, because he is. Nor do we have to guess or wonder that Jesus will someday reign as king over the house of Israel forever because the angel Gabriel made that very pronouncement very clear and very plain. And that kingdom, it says, will have no end. Just like we see in Daniel 2 and like we're going to see in Daniel chapter 7. This isn't a new theme that we just find in the book of Daniel. Again, let me show you another one from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, heaven's reply we see in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Verse 5, Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And here we see very plainly, and we take this language right here, you shall break them with a rod of iron. If you were to go to Revelation 19, 11 through 19, you see this language pulled out of Psalm 2 and inserted right in Revelation 19, as Jesus upon a white steed is coming back from heaven to earth, it says the sword is coming from his mouth. And it says in Revelation 19 that he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when he comes, he's going to tread the wrath, of the, the fierce wrath of, the God, of God Almighty on the nations. He will indeed shatter them like earthenware. And so the warning to those kings of the earth is to have discernment, take warning, and instead worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You ought to be doing homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. Because when He comes and He treads out the wrath of the fierce God Almighty, 
there in Revelation 19 and as we see in Revelation chapter 6 when we have the opening of the sixth seal and the day of the wrath has come. We know that this wrath that comes, and notice what it says right here, for his wrath, what? May soon be kindled. Even in Psalm 2, we recognize the idea of the nearness. David the psalmist is writing here of something that is yet future, of a coming king to establish his kingdom. And David in Psalm 2 is already verbally recognizing the nearness of that. That it might be, as it were, a warning to not only the judges, but all the peoples of the earth to pay homage to the Son with reverence and to rejoice before Him with trembling. Because as the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we see this very theme very clearly again in Psalm 2. We see it in Psalm 45, the king and his coronation. In Psalm 72, again, the king and his coronation. In Psalm 110, we see the king coming to take his throne. In Isaiah chapter 9, another passage I want to put before us this morning. In Isaiah chapter 9, we see this exact same theme yet again from the prophet Isaiah. He says in verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Later on, there's a future coming when that land in Israel will be made glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, there will be a reestablishing of it and to uphold it, that kingdom, with justice and righteousness from then on. Even we see in Isaiah, he, he recognizes that this is a future fulfillment of this time when the Prince of Peace, the Mighty Counselor, will be ruling over the throne of David and will be establishing a kingdom upon this earth over the throne of David. And he says from then on, even Isaiah is recognizing that it's still yet future from where he's at. From then on and forevermore, he is also recognizing that this kingdom will last forevermore. It's an eternal kingdom. Just like we've been seeing in Daniel chapter 2, and like we're going to see in Daniel chapter 7. 
And it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will accomplish this. The prophet Isaiah was given this vision of the kings coming to rule from, the, from and over the throne of David to establish his kingdom. Again, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Genesis 49, Psalm 2, Isaiah 9. We could go to Zechariah 9. We see there in Zechariah 9 the coronation of the coming of this king, this same king and his kingdom. The coming of a king to rule and reign and to establish an earthly kingdom over the throne throne of David. And these are just a few examples. The Old Testament prophets, if you will, are laden with this very message of the coming king and his kingdom. And we could probably have spent the rest of today just looking at a myriad of other Old Testament passages that reaffirm this reality. And when we look at all of these passages in conjunction with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and the book of Revelation, we see that the coming of this king and his kingdom is that which comes at the second coming of the person of Jesus Christ. The Lion of Judah. Shiloh. I want to show you one more passage that I think from the New Testament that parlays with this very well and is very relevant to this topic in Acts chapter 1. Notice Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, until the day of his ascension back to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And as we read through this passage in Acts 1, and we make our way eventually down through verse 11, we have some contextual contours that help us understand what the things concerning the kingdom of God that Jesus would have been giving these orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And it seems very plainly that the teaching that Jesus is giving them was of what life was going to look like for them in the building of the kingdom of God, things concerning the kingdom of God, through the proclamation of the gospel. To the uttermost parts of the world, we're going to get to that one. So they need to be taking the gospel and preaching that gospel and proclaiming that gospel, and you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you for that very purpose. And God's going to be building His kingdom through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind as we continue reading. He gathered them together, verse 4. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said you heard of from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying... 
Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Seems to be a little bit of an off-balanced question with regard to the context that this is seated in, but let's finish reading this. We're going to come back to that. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses purpose of the building of the kingdom of God is the proclamation of the gospel. You shall be my witnesses. And you're not on your own. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to accomplish the goal of being witnesses. Where? Both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. This is a gospel that needs to go around the entire world, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in the Olivet Discourse, I believe it's there that says that the preaching must go to the entire earth, then the end will come. Jesus knew that there was a period of gospel proclamation. It's called the church age in the book of Daniel. We'll get there when we get to chapter 9 here in a few weeks or maybe a month and a half. We'll see. That there's a need for the proclamation of the gospel, and then the end will come. And after he had said these things, verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and behold, a cloud received him out of their sight. Now I'm going to be coming back to this right here when we get to Daniel chapter 7. We will be getting to Daniel chapter 7. This may be my longest intro to any chapter of any book of the Bible ever, but as you know... Um, the, the intent is um, Bible literacy and education because there's so much in this that we can take with us. We just got it, but we have to build, we have to lay the whole, we, get, we got to get it all out there. And so in order to see these themes, I think it's a very important educational, it's more teaching today than maybe perhaps preaching, I might say, okay? That's where I'm headed. We're going to come back to this portion right here when we get into Daniel 7. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, and while he was going, behold, two men in white clothes stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. In just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So again, this Acts 1 through 11 clearly seems to be Jesus giving instruction to his apostles, disciples, concerning the kingdom of God and the spreading of that kingdom of God. You're going to get power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses all the way to the uttermost parts of the world. Begin where you are and go outwards. If you can't do it at home, you probably aren't going to be very well at exporting it, so be effective evangelist where you are. And then go overseas. And then after he said these things, this is when he departs. A cloud receives him out of their sight. But did you notice the only question? The only question that these apostles, these disciples that were specifically chosen by Jesus, the only question that they ask him and is recorded here, and when it's talking about that he spent time with them over 40 days teaching them about things concerning the kingdom of God, the only question that they asked him was related to what we've been talking about hitheretofore. A king coming and the establishment of a kingdom. Did you notice that? 
Verse 6. They were asking him, Hey, Lord, all this teaching is, is really great. And we want to do it effectively. We want to be witnesses all around the world with the proclamation of the gospel. But could, could you just go ahead and perhaps maybe let us know, is it going to also be maybe at the same time while we're doing that, are you, are you going to be restoring the kingdom to Israel? You know, we've, we've been waiting for that. Our prophets have been prophesying, telling us of a coming king from Genesis, Shiloh, to whom all the peoples will, will give homage. We've been waiting for this coming king in a kingdom for a long time now. As a matter of fact, Lord, you may remember one of the biggest problems that most of us Jewish people like you are had was we were perceiving that when Messiah came, he was not going to come as a suffering servant like you did. By grace, you opened our eyes and our hearts to be able to receive that truth and to understand that truth. But we've been waiting for Messiah to come to establish a kingdom to sit upon the throne of David, and to reestablish Israel as a dominant national power over the world again, as we've been reading in our Old Testament, Lord. So while we're doing all this proclamation and being witnesses, is it at this time that you're going to be restoring the kingdom to Israel? We're just curious. I mean, their hearts and their minds are locked still on that one aspect of Old Testament prophecy. Still looking for a coming king to planet earth to establish a Davidic kingdom. Clearly they're looking for this. And the reply that they got was perhaps not what they wanted, but it went back into the purpose for which Jesus had been instructing them. But he gives them this little tidbit. It's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed which lets us know that the Father has fixed in His own time the fulfillment of what you're looking for. It's just not yet. Which means that it's still yet future from, these, from the perspective of the disciples and even from our perspective, it's still yet future. We're still waiting for that king and that kingdom to come to earth and to establish a literal kingdom on earth and that Jesus will be ruling over that kingdom from the throne of David. So he at least lets them know. He didn't say, hey, no, you know, we're going to kind of spiritualize that now. I mean, now, now that we've moved into the Newer Testament time, we're going to kind of spiritualize everything that the nation of Israel was looking for, and it's not going to be any, no longer a literal kingdom. It's just going to be me sitting in my throne in heaven, ruling from heaven on the Davidic throne there over the earth. He doesn't say or give any indication that that's the case at all. Their question was very direct, related to all these Old Testament prophets. And he's basically saying, not yet. That time's still coming. But in the meantime, I want you to be my witnesses. Take that gospel message and take it to the uttermost parts of the earth while you're waiting for this to come. Remember Psalm 2? David? He said that the wrath of the Lord was right near. We've been living in the light of the nearness of the coming of that since the foundation of the world. 
Because from God's perspective, there is no time. And we see that voice echoing through the voice of the prophets. This time that the Father is fixed is coming. There is a coming kingdom that will be restored over the nation Israel. And that is their only question. And then he sent them out with marching orders to go be witnesses. Isn't that good? So now, after my longest introduction ever on any sermon I've ever preached, how about we get to Daniel 7? Y'all look a little tired right now. You look a little mental, a little, like a little mental fatigue maybe setting in. And you know, that's good. Sometimes we come to church and we want to feel good, but sometimes we need to leave with our brains feeling heavy. Like, man, he just went through a lot of passages and made a lot of connecting points. You need to keep those connecting points, and then you go back into the Scriptures like the Bereans, and you study to make sure that everything I just told you is true. Amen? That's what you do. That's what you get to do this week. So if you need a list of all these passages that I gave to you, I will gladly send them to you, and you can go ferret them out and find that thread that runs from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. A king is coming, and he's going to be reigning over his kingdom that will endure forever and ever and ever. And we've seen it very plainly in Daniel 2. It's a rock cut without hands. It's going to demolish the kingdoms of this world and the ruling powers of this world. There's not even going to be a trace left of of those ruling powers, it says in Daniel 2. Not even a trace. And that the mountain of God, the, the kingdom of God, will take over the entire world, as has been foretold by all the prophets. So in Daniel 7, so here's my, here's my hope in the next <clears throat> five minutes. I don't know if I can pull this off, Royce, but I'm going to try. Does anybody have any urgent plans after church today? I mean, you got like anything really urgent? I mean, like that's going to keep you, uh, like if I preach an extra 10 minutes, it's just going to like burn your socks. I didn't think so. All right, let's do this. So, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the plan. I'm going to walk through Daniel 7 quickly, like the good Lord willing, the entirety of it, quickly, giving a thumbnail sketch of what we see in Daniel 7 so that you can see the entirety of it laid out in a panoramic view. Because if you don't get the end, the beginning gets kind of difficult to make sense of. You have a divine interpretation of the beginning at the end. So I want to walk through all of Daniel chapter 7 and give just a cursory footnote along the way of some significant things. And then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to go back into Daniel 7 And we're going to look not at the entirety of Daniel 7, but we're going to explode some of the key things that we see in Daniel 7 and make broader theological connections within future Revelation, and in particular, the Gospels and the book of Revelation. So we'll do that next week. We'll get more in depth on some of the details, but I just want to try as quickly as I can to read through this and like a rock that's skipping across the water just show you some of the highlights and the larger overtones of Daniel chapter 7. And next week, we'll, we'll um, go back in and get more particular. Notice verse 1. There it is. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as, they, as he lay on his bed 
Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So the last time we see Belshazzar the king was back in chapter 5. Chapter 5 gives us the account of the night that Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar, we know from history, ruled about 14 years as the king of Babylon. And so Daniel's vision, the vision that was given Daniel, that he saw in a dream and visions in the night, fits somewhere chronologically between chapters 4 and chapter 5. Babylon at this time is still the ruling empire. The Medes and the Persians haven't overthrown them just yet when Daniel sees this vision. Look at verses 2 through 8. I'm going to have to kind of do it, yeah, 2 through 8. Then Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, verse 5, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Verse 7, after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, verse 8, behold, Another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Now, without question, this vision is very different than that of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Would you agree with that already? Significantly different, the vision that Daniel gets than what Nebuchadnezzar had gotten. But again, when we get to verses 15 down through 27, thankfully we have a divine interpretation that gives us some insight to this. Otherwise, we would be left a little bit like, you know, licking the finger in the wind to see which way we might think this should all blow. So thankfully, we do have divine interpretation of this vision, and this is why I want to kind of just get through this so that we can kind of see the big panoramic view, and then next week we will go back in and, and ferret out some of the details that are significant in this along the way. Okay, so keep looking. We have a transition here um, up to a heavenly beatific vision. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days, I think we sang a song today, our God is the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head 
like pure wool. His throne was blazing with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. So in this little setting of these two verses, we see a vi- Daniel in his vision sees the eternal God, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, taking a, a seat at court, and books are opened, and he's going to be giving a pronouncement. And notice what said pronouncement becomes. Verse 11, Daniel sees this. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words. Now remember, back over here, remember this, the little horn? The little one, this horn, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering boasts. So Daniel now, seeing this beatific vision of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and then he says, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, that's that little horn, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. So this little horn beast here, he gets taken out. And his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So this is why we've got to do a deeper dive in next week to get into some of these details. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And then as Daniel continues to see in his vision... He sees the coronation of Christ. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So I told you, I don't think I have time to flip back to all those passages, but do you remember in... um, the book of Acts, Jesus ascended with the clouds of heaven. The two men in white, the two angels, said, why are you gazing to the heavens? This Jesus whom you see going away, he's going to come back in the exact same way as you've seen him go away, right? A lot of conservative scholars connect Jesus' ascension, going off with the clouds of heaven, with this statement here that Daniel sees. Behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. It's as if God sent his son to earth to accomplish his purposes. He accomplished his purposes. And then God took his son and ascended him back up to heaven, off this earth, before he comes the second time. And after accomplishing all that God had intended for him to accomplish by by way of reconciliation, it seems perhaps that Jesus, on that cloud that took him away, ushered him into this vision that Daniel sees, who Jesus being the Son of Man here, right before the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And then to him, the Son of Man... Jesus Christ himself, Shiloh, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And we see here at the end of verse 14, language that is so similar to the language that we saw in Daniel chapter 2, in Psalm 2, in Isaiah 9, and we could have gone into many other other prophets and the other ones we looked at, we see very similar language. It's the, the pronouncement that this one, the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, will be the one that's going to be doing the very things that the prophets have talked about. His disciples were saying, well, is, is the time now for that? He says, it's not yet. God's got that fixed according to His own time when that's going to take place. Jesus ushered before the, the God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given this dominion and glory for a nation that will last forever, a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever over every people of every language, just like J- Jacob in Genesis 49 also saw. Isn't that good? We're going to delve into that one a little bit deeper, obviously, next week. Let's, let's hit a large chunk here, again, down, all the way down to verse 27. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And this is where we get the interpretation, that inspired interpretation of these beasts that we saw a little bit earlier. This is where we get some help. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. And this is where we see the parlaying of Daniel's vision and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But the saints, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. For all ages to come. So that rock that's going to smash the powers of men is going to establish a kingdom that was given to him that will last forever and ever. And it's the saints of the highest one who are going to actually be receivers of this kingdom and possessors of this kingdom forever, for all ages to come. It's an eternal kingdom that will take over the entire earth, just like Daniel 2 and the prophets foretold. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, that's the little horn, and before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than all its associates." I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So that little horn we saw was put to death. We saw that earlier in the chapter. But here, before it's, that horn is put to death, it says that that horn, that little horn, who is going to be the Antichrist, is waging war with the saints of God and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Word of God says that if the time of that tribulation and persecution, the Antichrist persecution, had those days not been cut short, 
no life would have been preserved except because of the elect. God cut that time short. We're going to delve into some of these things. Let's keep moving. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three. There's some restating of some things we've already seen. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time. That's one times, that's two. So one plus two equals three and half a time. That's half. That's three and a half years. And we'll be connecting this to the book of Revelation when we have a chance, when we gather next week. You think I'm going to get all this in next week either? Are you starting to see the depth of Daniel chapter 7? I'm in trouble. No, I'm not. We just go week to week and we study the Word of God so that we can be enriched in our souls and worship Him greater. Amen? Well, let me finish. We're almost there. You've, been, you've, bear, you've borne with me long here, but we're almost there. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. So there goes the Antichrist. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven, under the whole heaven, under it, not above it, in it, but under the whole heaven, will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Just like Jacob said in Genesis 49, amen? Just like it's been saying from the beginning. Now, um, uh, there's a lot here. Like I said, I'm going to skip this across a rock on, on water so you can see the big panoramic view of Daniel 7. There's a lot we're going to delve into next week and perhaps the week after that. But this is extremely rich. But I wanted to show you this. I know, I know you've been waiting for this one. You've just been waiting and longing for it. But this was Daniel 2. But notice how... Notice how, I've got one for you for Daniel 7, but notice how we're going to lay this guy over on his side. How about that? So we'll, we'll take another look at this guy. And we got, so we got the Daniel 2 kind of laid out here. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire. And then we got Daniel 7 here and the lion, the bear, the leopard, the beast. So we'll take a look at that. You'll get to enjoy this new um, uh, 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 chart <laughs> we've got for our, for our enjoyment, but more on that next week to show how these things lay out together. Last verse, Daniel 7, 28. At this point, the revelation ended. Whew, I don't know about you, but I'm worn out. I'm glad that this one has ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself for a certain amount of time. And then obviously he wrote it down so that we could be the recipients of it, the glad recipients of it, so that we can understand, hopefully, some things that are yet to come and walk in freedom, being witnesses until that time. Amen? So that's a lot. There's Daniel 7 in a real thinly, it's, it's thin. Come back next week. That's what we do. We study the Bible. That's why we're a Bible church. I don't have always three little points and we're just going to study the Word of God. And I'm thankful that God has people that have hearts that want to know His Word, people like you. Let's pray together.